0: This is Incredible Stories Podcast, episode 14. War War II: Jungle Rescue. Well hello again everyone, it's time for another Incredible Stories podcast. I'm Josh Vierla, your indefatigable host, and thanks for being here. Say, have you ever been watching a movie or action show and the heroes end up in a sticky situation from which they need to escape, and then they devise some preposterous plan that somehow works? I know I have, and I often find myself thinking, well that's just ridiculous. There's no way that would ever work. But today's episode, we'll be learning of a jungle escape that seems hatched from the brains of a 14-year-old hopped up on ideas after watching a James Bond marathon. But the kicker is, the escape actually worked. Today I'm talking about the 1945 rescue of the crew of a gremlin special from the jungles of Papua New Guinea. Here's what I know. First, let's set the scene. Papua New Guinea is the second largest island in the world. Densely forested, mountainous, and remote, even today. But in 1945, it was a lost world. Nearing the end of World War II, it was an important part of the U.S. Navy's move across the Pacific. It was also essential for the U.S. Army as they used it to great effectiveness in liberating the Philippines from Japan. It's rugged terrain made only harder by dense jungles and rainfall, averaging between 80 to 200 inches a year, give or take depending on the season. Add on top of that malaria, dengue fever, and an assortment of other nasty jungle diseases. Oh, and the occasional nibbling of humans by Papua New Guinea cannibals. Well, despite all these negative marks against the island, some members of the U.S. Army decided to take a little looky-loo at the jungle from the air. It was, after all, a beautiful and exotic landscape, and some people fancied a jaunt on an aeroplane for a sightseeing tour. In fact, the massive valley they were to fly over was called Shangri-La, collectively by the people, and was about 40 miles long and 8 miles wide, so pretty big area here. Now, on May 13, 1945, 24 American servicemen and women got on board of a gremlin special and took off. Side note, gremlin is a great name for a plane, just the image I want when flying, I tell you. But this plane was used for a bunch of stuff, but mostly it was just a big cargo plane and used to move troops around. Now remember how I said Papua New Guinea was mountainous? Well, couple that with some clouds and you got a recipe ripe for plane crashes. You see, the high mountains often were clouded over. The mountainous valleys are somewhat known to be plane killers, as many planes have crashed here over the years. Well, the Kremlin Special was no exception, as it ended up slamming into the side of a mountain, breaking into two and bursting into flames. Now, you know, luckily the mountains were, you know, forested, so the trees, I guess, helped a little bit in breaking up that fall. So because of that, remarkably, five passengers survived the initial crash into the jungly mountain. So we have Private Eleanor Hanna, Sergeant Laura Besley, Corporal Margaret Hastings, Sergeant Kenneth Decker, and Lieutenant John McCollum. Unfortunately, over the course of the next few days, Laura and Eleanor died from injuries of the crash, leaving only Margaret, Kenneth, and John surviving. Now, Margaret and the other women that were on the flight uh, were members of the Women's Army Corps, also known as WAC. And interestingly, John's brother was also on the plane, but he died in the crash. However, no time for sorrows or grieving. Being the highest ranking person to survive the crash, it was John who would take charge of the situation. Surprisingly, John was also the only survivor not injured. Now, he must have had some angels looking after him that day, because that's quite the task, let me tell you. The survivors, the three remaining survivors, that is, were about 165 miles from the closest mark of Western civilization. Oh, and also the valley was home to some 110,000 members of the Dani people who inhabited the highlands of this region. Remember, this area was very remote, and the native peoples hadn't really encountered people from the outside world before. So you have two things that will happen here. Firstly, the Danny people weren't familiar with anything from outside their pretty much Stone Age existence, and as such they thought planes were some sort of large spirit birds. It scared many of them and you know oftentimes they would go running and hide from them. Likewise, White people were also thought to be spirits, and because they wore clothes uh, during other encounters that, that the Danny people had with them, they thought that the spirits didn't need to go to the bathroom, because why would you wear clothes to cover up all your you know, odds and ends uh, that you would otherwise use to do things with? So that was kind of a weird little aspect of how the Dani people in Papua New Guinea thought of the very few white people that they ever encountered. Now, there had been a few contact with natives of Papua New Guinea, but again, because of the remoteness, few Dani and other peoples of Papua New Guinea had seen or heard of white people or knew of the outside world well into the 50s. So this all benefited the survivors as the natives thought they were mighty spirits. No cooking in a pot for them, for now. But the second thing is, once the Danny realized these white people were not spirits, they might become hostile toward them. You see, because they do have a culture and history of cannibalism in Papua New Guinea, although, you know, it's kind of complicated, and sometimes it still goes on, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but they did have the reputation of being headhunters in this area. Luckily, though, for the survivors, they had some time. So, question, you're stuck in a dense jungle, surrounded by potentially hostile people, what do you do? Usually, in survival situations, you'd want to stay put for search parties, but John knew that it was much too dense for them to be spotted by search planes where they crashed. Now, when they had been in the air, they remembered seeing a small village and and figured that would be a better shot of being rescued. So the survivors made the decision to find a clearing where they could more easily be seen. So they all made like Dora the Explorers. John, Margaret, and Kenneth started wandering 11,000 feet down the mountainous and thickly forested terrain looking for an opening. And by Joe, wouldn't you know they found one. In the form of a sweet potato patch near the village. Sweet potatoes were cultivated by the natives and, you know, used as, um their primary food sources. So, you know, after they found the sweet potato patch, it took four days until they were spotted by rescue planes. Hooray! They're rescued! Not so fast! It wasn't going to be that easy. Shortly after finding the clearing, the three survivors were found by a small tribe of natives. Can you imagine the collective bricks that were (laughs) by John, Margaret, and Kenneth? They were aware of the stories that local tribes were headhunting cannibals, so were quite fearful, I'm sure. But lucky for them, the leader of the small band was friendly, and cannibalism is an episode for another time. John and the survivors smiled and presented themselves in a manner that both groups became, you know, more or less friends, and curious about each other's culture. So that was one less thing for them to worry about, but something they did have to worry about, were the injuries that Margaret and Kenneth had. Both were badly burned during the crash, and their wounds started to develop gangrene. And if you didn't know, gangrene is a pretty nasty. It's a type of necrosis, so it's when your flesh starts dying due to insufficient blood supply, and oftentimes it starts to smell bad, which their injuries were starting to do. It's pretty gross. Most of Margaret's injuries were on her legs. Okay, so now back to the planes that found them. You see, the clearing wasn't big enough for a plane to land and take off from, so all the planes could do was circle around. But Josh, why not just walk back to their base? Well, as I mentioned before, they were some 160 miles from anywhere, and traversing those dense jungles while healthy is near impossible, let alone the fact that they were injured with no gear. Plus, even though their new native friends weren't hostile, it would be a major risk for them to trek through the territories of the native tribes. I'm most certain they would have been killed, as, you know, they were discovered to not be spirits. Luckily for them, though, the search planes were able to drop supplies and paratroopers down to them. Why would they drop paratroopers in and get more people stranded there, you ask? Well... To administer first aid and provide guidance, but also to give the survivors some, you know, reinforcements in case hostilities did break out. Three versus any number of 100,000 plus are not good odds after all. Also, they didn't realize at first that there was no way to get back out. So, in total, the um, number of people that were dropped in with the three survivors were two medical personnel and ten additional paratroopers were dropped in. Now, I like them odds a lot better. Well, since they're stranding, word started getting out and was starting to create quite the media buzz. But let's add to this that one of the survivors was a woman and pretty hot. I must say Corporal Margaret Hastings was attractive and a quality that was not lost on the media covering the story of the time. In fact, reporters started going up on the flyovers that were tasked with dropping provisions to the survivors. Think of it like, uh, kind of like the Hunger Games where concerned people wanted to send help to the lovely lady. And guys, too, I guess. Some of the things they dropped included uniforms, walkie-talkies, and lots of makeup. Hey, it was the 40s after all. So this goes on a while. In fact, they are in the jungle for 47 days total. But after about a month, they figured out a plan, and I think this is how it came about. Guys, guys. I know we've been stuck in here for a while, but I f- think I got a solution, dude. What you got, Jimmy? Okay, okay, check it check it out, dude. Dude, I know we're stuck in this potato patch, which, you know, isn't big enough to land a plane on. But what if instead of a plane, we get a glider, man? A glider? Aren't those small? Nah, man. We got one of those big military gliders. You know, the the big ones. Oh. But, but Jimmy, those gliders need to be towed by a plane to get in the air. How does that solve anything? Dude. We make a landing strip, man. We get a... Few paratroopers to knock down some trees and bada bing, a landing strip. But we are on the side of mountains here. There's not really a suitable flat place to clear a landing strip long enough for a plane. And if we were doing that, why not just make one big enough for a plane? Now, oh, man, check it out. Check it out. Check it. Check 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 it. My boys. Scouted a suitable flat place in the forest about 40 miles from here. There's just enough space to launch a glider. Okay, but how do we launch it? Guy, guy. We get a plane to fly over to the glider launch site, man. With a long ass hook. Then we put a tow rope on top of the glider for the plane to snag when it flies over. And then once the hook's on the glider, it will lift off and we'll be able to get the people out, man! Jimmy, that is brilliant! Have you been drinking, by the way? Oh, who cares, let's start hiking. So, you know that's a pretty crazy plan, right? Their survivors and rescue team had to march 40 miles away to a more suitable area. I remember Margaret and Kenneth had burns, and I know Margaret had burns on her legs, so this was probably a fairly painful trek for them. Now, because they were in a valley, regular planes couldn't take off and land, so what they did was drop in some gliding planes. And the type of gliders they used were called a Waco CG4. And these are pretty much made out of wood and metal and covered in a fabric and could carry about 13 people and some gear. So I'll link a picture of this glider in the show notes. But to kind of describe it, it was a boxy looking sort of plane with some sort of arm thing over the cockpit, which uh, a tow rope would attach to. And that tow rope was attached to a loop that was attached to two poles. So kind of thing like field goal type of looking thing sticking up in the middle of a field with a rope across it and then a rope, attached that rope attached to the plane. So then that, so when a plane would fly over that was dangling a hook from it, it would Hook onto that loop that was attached to the glider and start dragging that glider to sufficient enough speeds where it would launch itself, and then the pilot would be able to fly it uh, where he needed to go, or glide it as it were, and then land it where wherever he needed. That was in a more appropriate spot. So this was done three times to get all the survivors and rescue teams out of the valley, and once they did that, they were brought back to the base. Hooray! Now, before they were actually rescued, a documentary filmmaker parachuted into the jungle before they made that 40-mile trek and was able to film their rescue and escape. And it's pretty neat to see. The film shows everyone doing fairly well for the most part. It also documents their interactions with the native peoples. They seem like they're all having a fairly good time. The cultures are mingling and happy with each other, showing off different things, bartering and trading... Uh, I'll link a YouTube video of this in the show notes for you to check out at your leisure, but I would suggest you do so so you can kind of get a better feel of what this area looked like and how the Native peoples were interacting with the white folks. So, you know, kind of a weird thing, I guess, is the Native people were also very keen on... um, Margaret, because she was, you know, a white woman, and they weren't really used to seeing women at all, I guess. And so, as such, they treated her kind of like they—they were more curious about her than the others, it seemed. And that's kind of a theme that you will see here. Following is the, the interest in Margaret as opposed to everyone else. So, upon arriving, you know, back home and stuff, Margaret got most of the attention, of course. And according to Life Magazine, she was the most photographed girl in the US for a week sometime after her rescue. And while her male counterparts might not have had all the media buzz around them that Margaret had, it makes their parts in surviving this jungle disaster no less important. I have no doubt if it had been only one survivor, this story might have ended a lot different. So. That's pretty much the story of the Gremlin special rescue from the jungles of Papua New Guinea. And now you know what I know. So, a little footnote. Um, after World War II, Kenneth went on to get an engineering degree and worked for Boeing until 1974, uh, when he retired. And he died in 2000. Now, I wasn't able to find much about John other than he died in 2001. And Margaret attended Syracuse for two years before getting married and having two kids. And she then went on to work at Griffiths Air Force Base as a civilian, and she died in 1978 of cancer. So, kind of young still. Now, if you've listened to any of my previous podcasts about survivors, you'll know I love these stories. The three survivors undoubtedly helped each other cope and survive immediately following their accident. Having individuals around you just increases your odds of survival, but they could have easily let their situation gotten the better of them. Thanks to their will, each other, and a little help from the military and friendly natives, they were able to escape in a manner fitting of any action movie. In fact, I'm surprised that this hasn't been made into a big-budget film starring Jennifer Lawrence yet. But I often like to imagine what I would have done if I were to be in such scenarios. And it's really the intangible force of one's will to survive that determines if a horrible event becomes a death sentence or the basis of an incredible story. So with that, time for the haiku! (laughs) Plane Crash Tragedy Unforgiving Jungles Be Living Only Three And that's all the time this week. Check out our main site for other cool stories like this at incrediblestoriespodcast.com Send me an email or IQ or show suggestion. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at IncredPod rate us on iTunes, and peep us out on YouTube and Stitcher. For Incredible Stories Podcast, I'm Josh, and remember, the journey of a thousand tales begins with the first word.